men often feel awkward about being that kind of raving fan about women, right? What will people think, right? Will they think there's something going on, you know, that it feels kind of weird or awkward to me? Men feel more comfortable doing that for other men, but we've got to practice doing it for those high-talent women. Welcome to Ambition Theory, Women in Construction. This show asks questions that everybody is thinking about, but doesn't want to say out loud. It's about tackling complex topics like, why are there so few women in senior leadership positions? What is it going to take to change this? Each episode is a combination of motivation and tactical strategies to get ahead. We get out of our comfort zones and we take action. We learn, grow, and create opportunities. I am your host, Andrea Jansen, a certified executive coach with an MBA, and since 2018, I've coached over a thousand construction professionals to level up their leadership. Let's get started. Whenever we speak to men who want to be better allies in the workplace, they're often unsure about what they can do to help. This is why I'm super excited to share today's episode with you. David Smith and Brad Johnson are the co-authors of the books, Athena Rising, How and Why Men Should Mentor Women, and Good Guys, How Men Can Be Better Allies for Women in the Workplace. In this conversation, we talked about the following. The barriers that women face on the path to leadership, like the double bind and the prove it again bias. Why sponsorship is one of the best tools for allies and how you can start sponsoring women today how to speak up when somebody says something inappropriate in a professional setting. I hope you find some practical tools from this conversation that you can start implementing today. Do you know what the number one question we get when speaking to companies about our Leadership Accelerator program for women in construction? We already have an internal leadership program or a mentorship program available, which is great. But the thing is, these programs don't work the same way for women as they do for men. There are many reasons why, but the most striking one, one that if you're a woman listening right now, you'll probably recognize right away. It's the double bind. We did some research last year and found that 78% of women were told that if they wanted to accelerate their path to leadership, they needed to be more confident. But 70% of those same women were also told that they were being too bossy. Basically, as soon as a woman embodies the traits most typically associated with leadership in the construction industry, they're faced with negative feedback. This is the double bind. And this is why specialized training for women is needed. If you want to learn more about how our Leadership Accelerator program can help you address the double bind and many other obstacles women face on the path to leadership, please visit ambitiontheory.com forward slash LAP. David and Brad, welcome to Ambition Theory Women in Construction. I am so excited that I get to interview you today. So you wrote the book, Good Guys, How Men Can Be Allies for Women in the Workplace. And before that, in back in, I think it was 2017, you wrote Athena Rising, How and Why Men Should Mentor Women. So you were really those early adopters, really putting yourself out there about really men standing up, taking action to promote equity in the workplace. Your books are fantastic. They have really tangible insights 
in them. I learned a lot from reading them, but I'm really curious if you could take me back and talk about what was going on for each of you before you decided to write the first book. Yeah. Wow. Well, there's a lot going on, but maybe I'll jump in, Dave. You know, I'll speak for myself, Andrea. This is Brad. I I, I think the big issue for me, you know, in terms of maybe being the instigator into this conversation and into the topic was that I had spent my entire career researching mentoring relationships and what those look like when they're really effective. And I'd always noticed that data kind of troubled me that women get far less mentoring than men do. And there are a lot of reasons for that, right? A lot of reasons men are uncomfortable mentoring women. But then even if they're mentored, we find in the research that they get far less sponsorship as part of a mentor relationship. So they're not pushed forward for opportunities and advancement and stretch assignments the same way that men tend to be. So I'd been aware of that, and it didn't really dawn on me until having some early conversations with Dave that, hey, maybe maybe there's something we could do to address men. Because nobody was doing that. All the you you've seen all this guidance, right? It's all directed toward women, how they should get better, how they should pretzel themselves, how they should go find male mentors. But nobody's talking to men or was at the time about what they could do to lean in and be part of the solution, promoting gender equity, maybe overcoming some of their inherent, you know, biases or hurdles to initiating relationships with women. So That was really the beginning of it for me. And, you know, Dave has his own narrative. I think another piece is the personal. And for me, Andrea, that was one sibling. I've got a sister who's a naval officer. and um, Our our early careers were almost identical, but Shannon stayed in the military. And over the years, listening to her and what she encounters in the workplace constantly that I never did, You know, minor things like being told to smile more almost every week to really significant things like receiving negative feedback when she gives people uh, direct feedback, right, that she's too abrasive. So that was also kind of an eye opener and, you know, maybe something I I noticed. Okay, I love that you brought a couple of things you brought up. So sponsorship, that's something that we work with our clients on. We work with the women, help them understand the difference between sponsorship and mentorship. So I love that you brought that up right out of the gate. I want to talk about that a little bit later, but also the double bind. So the fact that if women show up as assertive and they give that critical feedback that's needed to move things forward, they get that backlash that they're being too aggressive. So I love that you actually took the time to listen to your sister and really, it just sounds like you had that moment. You're like, I'm curious, like what is going on? So Dave, what was going on for you? Yeah, you know, and as a sociologist, I've done all of my research in the area of looking at the the intersection of gender work and family. So looking at gendered perspectives on careers and how there's differences with those and how the workplace in many ways is really not designed to support women or for women to be successful there. And, you know, when Brad and I had this early conversation about thinking about the mentoring and sponsoring, just kind of career development more broadly and how we support each other in doing that, it was, it was really, it just kind of stood out to me that, yeah, we, we don't have the same access. There's not even a same kind of understanding that people are getting different access or different quality in terms of 
career resources and that often come through the mentoring and the sponsoring that it's often taken for granted in so many ways. I think for us as men, we don't experience that. So we don't understand it as well. And I think that that was something that was really kind of a, you know, the part of it that really, I think motivated to really move forward with this was that it had a, it had the feel of, we need to be part of the solution here and not, you know, not continue to document the problem, which seems like that's a lot of the ways research goes. And there was a, there was a unique opportunity, I think, as both of us who identify as being kind of middle-aged, I'll speak for myself, Brad, middle-aged uh, white men, but the, you know, we're in that majority identity and you know, there's not a lot of men out there talking about this and talking about how we can, we can be better and, in terms of showing up as allies, as mentors, as sponsors place. So for me, that was, a, that was a large part of it. So I'm really curious at the time when you first kind of started this collaboration, Brad, you mentioned it before, like most of the books, most of the talk out there is about how women can move this forward, right? All the burden was placed on women and you came out and said, actually, no, there's a different way. What kind of reactions did you get at the time when you first started down this road? Yeah, you know, it's funny you ask that, Andrea, because we got interesting reactions from both men and women. And so for women, I think that was part of the big surprise for Dave and I. A lot of women were, were cheering us on from the very beginning, no doubt about it. I mean, we had a lot of great female colleagues who were all about the work we were doing, and that was terrific. But I think sometimes there were other groups of women that Dave and I have come to better understand who were not so sure about this. Why? Because I think when you see Athena rising, how and why men should mentor women, you can easily think that what we're saying is women need men, right? Or women have to have men rescue them or take care of them or, you know, whatever it is. And that is really not the optic we're going for versus how do men collaborate more effectively with women. And then the other place we, we got a little bit of pushback from women was maybe going, we get invited to a lot of women's conferences to speak. And when you're some of the first men showing up in those spaces, there are, there are understandably going to be women who push back on that, right? And, and say, hey, this has always been our sacred kind of safe space to network and share authentically with other women about what we're encountering in the workplace. Why do we invite men in here? They have the whole rest of the workplace. Let this be our space. And I think we've really come to understand and appreciate that and have great empathy for why some women may feel that way. And again, I think it, you know, we come back to the if we keep on our current course and don't change anything, it's great for women to be together talking about gender inequity. But, you know, for example, closing the pay gap at our current trajectory, it's going to take about 200 years. That's the estimate from the World Bank. So we have to get men to the table. We have to get them involved. I think what we're learning is the way men show up really matters. I got to show up with some real humility and openness and an attitude of collaboration. And if I can get that right, you know, then I think we can maybe have a conversation. But I think we, we really appreciate some of the concern that women have, that the way men show up is essential. It can't be showing up to speak for women. That, that is not the right optic. I love this. And so I actually get invited to speak at a lot of women conferences as well. And it's so fascinating. And this is why I wanted to have you on the podcast, because I think specifically in the construction industry, I think it's shifting really quickly. And that's what I've noticed. So 
I've been doing this for about five years and, you know, companies would say, come speak to our women's group, come do a talk at this women's conference. But over the past three months, I've had companies reach out and say, hey, can you please speak to our leadership team? Can you speak at our construction association AGM where all the senior leaders are going to be? And I think the tables have turned and people are really curious, men and women, about how do we tackle this together? And I think like the timing of your second book could not have been more perfect because I think people are ready to read the book. And I don't know, I, I like your book came out in 2017. And I just think about where the culture was back then. And that's almost like you guys were like ahead of your time with putting that content out there. And I'm I'm just so grateful that you already have those two books out there. You have all the research to back it up because I think people are ready to hear it. But one question I do have is about the sensitive topic of this, right? Because it is especially for companies, like a lot of times companies will kind of, you know, hide the elephant, right? It's like, oh, things are great here. We're an equitable employer. This is not a challenge here. And it's because, you know, it exposes this vulnerability. It exposes that, you know, we could make some improvements. Can you talk about how to overcome that? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because it's, as you mentioned, it's the elephant in the room. But it's also this not the lack of transparency in lots of organizations today of, of not being able to feel comfortable talking about these issues that are going on in the workplace is what's driving, you know, making the problem even worse and the lack of transparency and the lack of accountability for making it better. And, and, and I think when you talk to women about this specifically, but it also holds true for other people of diversity in the, in the organizations that one, they don't feel understood. They don't feel valued or respected when these are glossed over or just given lip service in some case, because they, there's a lack of trust. There's a lack of trust when, again, I think most organizations, people are talking about these issues in a variety of different ways. So leaders know about it. And people know that their leaders know about it, but they're not doing, there's, there's no movement. There's no discussion about what can we do better, acknowledging the fact that there, there are challenges out there. There are problems that we need to overcome. And the lack of conversation about it, lack of communication about it is not solving it. It's making it worse. And we find that that trust, it does come out in terms of things like retention, that women go, you know, this is not a great place to work. I'm going to go find someplace better or find something different, or I'll strike out on my own to do something, but I'm not going to just stay here and do that. They're not going to recommend your place of work as a great place to go if you're a woman to seek opportunities and employment in an organization like that. So it's it, it continues to take those organizations down as opposed to having the conversation about doing that. One of the things that we find that's really helpful into kind of overcoming some of that, those issues is, is one, getting senior leaders more comfortable talking about it. And, and that's, that might be, that might be the understatement of the year in some cases that getting these, these CEOs and C-suite leaders comfortable talking about things like gender or diversity or race in the organization. I think some of the social issues and political issues and things that are events that are happening in our country and our world today have forced them to have start having some of these conversations, which is probably a good thing from the company's perspective, at least that they're, they're being forced to think about it. But, you know, we often talk to these senior leaders that you need to be proactive about this and think about it. You're not going to get any more comfortable talking about it by not talking about it. So start with 
just start with what ought to be easier. Start with your own journey on this. Where, what's your personal narrative around diversity? What, what's happened in your life? Why would it be important to you? You must, you, yeah, everybody has their own narrative to this. And getting comfortable sharing that narrative with others is really important because it, it helps to develop some authenticity around the topic as a leader. That, hey, wait a minute, he gets it. He cares. And this is why. And then taking it to the next step, I think is really important too, is then moving that on to connecting to, okay, yeah, I see why it's personally important to him, but also why is it important to our business? So linking it to the key business outcomes, because again, all those other managers who work for that senior leader are looking to go, hey, you know, I, I get it, but that's just, that's nice. But what about the job? What about the performance piece of this that we have? We have a business, we have a product or a service that we have to deliver. How does that connect to that? And so making that connection, that explicit connection to why it's important to the business as well, goes a long way. So you authentically bring it out there, you show it's a, why it's the right thing to do, why it's important to you, and you you make the business case for it. I love it. And so do you, does it have to start at that C level? I think the C level is really important, but you can also start with grassroots folks. And Dave and I see both, you know, I think to his point, you got to have senior leaders talking about it in a perfect world if you really want to get there rapidly and then holding people accountable. But you, boy, we love it when organizations have grassroots groups of male allies. And we're seeing more and more of that. You know, so if you have a women's ERG or a women's network within your company, have you invited some of those key men who are already kind of showing up as allies to come to your events, to have conversations with your leaders about, hey, how could we begin to nurture a community of male allies within the company? So these would be men who not only come to your events and collaborate with you, but but maybe have their own network of male allies. Maybe they get together, have their own conversations about how they can show up, you know, do collaborative programming with the women's network. I think that's very powerful. So we'd love to see it both from the top and from the grassroots. Okay. And then from an ERG perspective, because we know in construction, lots of companies have ERGs. So it's kind of like the next level of the ERG is inviting the allies to come in and start like kind of like creating opportunities together. Would that be for those companies that have just kind of started from that grassroots perspective, the way forward? Yeah, that's a great way to think of it. And I think the other thing is recognizing there's an opportunity here, especially if you have a kind of a network of ERGs. And often it's not just one ERG, there's multiple in, the, in your organization of recognizing that we can be allies together, right? All of these ERGs and leveraging that network and bringing more people into the conversation and overlaps across, not just around gender, but could be around race or LGBT or families or you know new parents. There's all sorts of great ERGs out there today and understanding what works often in one ERG, it may work exactly the same in another ERG or for a different group, but there may be other kind of content, contextual aspects that you might need to shift and change too. So here's the opportunity to do that. One of the things that you brought up here is really important, and that's the inviting, inviting allies in. And one of the things we see that holds men back is they think they need an invitation to go in there, which in some cases I think is might be true, but other cases, maybe there's a, a standing invitation for anyone. To, but men still feel like that if I, you know, if I don't have ownership, I don't identify with that group in some way that I need an invitation to come in. So make the invitations explicit. 
Okay, that's really, really powerful. I really like that. So I want to talk about some of the specifics in your book. And I actually want to go back to one of the first things that Brad said. So we did a survey last year with women in construction. And we asked one question, and this is probably the most powerful piece of data we got out of this entire survey, was we asked women, what kind of feedback do you get about your leadership skills? And 78% of these women said they've gotten feedback that they need to be more confident. But 70% of them got feedback that they need to be less bossy. And really interesting tidbit here. So we presented this data for the first time publicly, Women in Construction Week last year, which is in March. And we had someone reach out afterwards, really saying like that it was such a compelling presentation. It really inspired them to take action. And I was so curious as to like, what did this person learn? And it was a man that came, he was in a leadership position. And I gave him a call after and I asked him like, what, what did you learn? And why are you so inspired to take action now? And he said, Andrea, when you put that slide up, that women are told to be confident and less bossy in order to get to that next level of leadership. He's like, I didn't believe you. He's like, I didn't think that it would happen in my company. Like, I can be confident and not bossy. Like, I do it every day. And then he also said, like, we have mentorship programs. We have an ERG. Like, I didn't think this could happen in my company. And then I asked him, what did you do about it? And he said, you know, what? I talked to four women on my project. and." I listened. I love in your book, literally the theme that came through for me was listening, listening, listening. So I was super happy that this person was listening. And he said, you know what? They just, you know, that is what's happening to them. Like they're getting that same feedback. And then this started his journey to keep going. He booked some time with his HR director to figure out like, what do I do with this information? How do I step up? But I want to bring it back to you because this is something that happens all the time. I know you have a whole chapter on feedback. So can you talk about how allies can step up now that they know this is a thing, it's nobody's fault, it just... Yeah, I'm going to let Dave lead with this, Andrea, because he's actually done big research studies on feedback that women get. And so I'd love to have him lead this off. Yeah, and you're you're bringing up something Thing that we find in a lot of the literature and the research out there that gets to two kind of two very core biases that we find that are, um, they are gender specific with women, but we also find them in, in other dimensions of diversity. We, that's a, maybe another conversation someday, but the, with women, one of them is around competence, right? And that women often are asked to prove their competence over and over and over again. And, you know, Joan Williams had labeled this the prove it again bias. And the other is the, around how we use power and then for agency is how we talk about it in the research. And this gets to the, what again, Joan calls the tightrope bias that, you know, try not to be too much of this, not too much of that. And it gets back to what you're talking about, the stereotypical leadership perceptions we have about leadership style. And that when women lead in that much more masculine, stereotypically masculine way, so more directive, the more assertive, they do get labeled bossy or even worse, right? You pick your other favorite B words out there. And, but the, the tightrope of this is that if they lead in a more stereotypically feminine way, so more participative or more collaborative, now she's not seen a strong leadership material. She doesn't have what it takes to get to that next level. You're lacking confidence. Right. And so you, you've kind of articulated that tightrope right there within that. You know, the interesting thing is that you can look at that and go, well, OK, maybe it's, that's just perception and we can educate men about perceptions. But the challenge here is that it goes beyond perceptions. 
And it's found in places that actually, that really derive into these inequities we have in the workplace, like lack of representation or of women in senior leadership system or the gender wage gap, for example. So we find it in performance reviews. We find it, we find examples of it in performance evaluations, the subjective language that's used to describe men and women as leaders and as managers is different. And it's more positive language attributes for men, more negative for women, but even the positive attributes are qualitatively different. And the language, recent research out of Stanford shows us that the language that's tied to men in most cases leads to more promotion opportunities. It leads to more pay, more incentives. So as you think about, you know, how does an everyday bias like this, like around competency or power, how does that play into creating a systemic inequity? That's one of the indicators of where we see that happen. And so you can, now you can think about how do I change the practice, for example, performance evaluation. Well, there's interventions you can do. You can do training with managers about gender bias and language and be attuned to that kind of language in there and you begin to shift it and to change it. You can hold them accountable for the outcomes of performance reviews. So as we look at the outcomes, how many people were promoted or what, and then we disaggregate the data down by gender. We do it by race or race and gender, other aspects to look at where are there, where are there some systemic differences that are showing up? And then why is that? Why, why do you find that that's happening? We, we shouldn't expect to see any, any type of systemic differences in those kinds of outcomes. So making managers feel accountable or they have to explain those things really changes it as well. Okay. So what are some actual things that men can do? Like knowing when they're, so say they have someone on their team, they're like, you know, this person is ready for the next level. I want to develop them so that they're not giving these women mixed messages because the feedback that we hear is you're frustrated. You're like, okay, you told me to do this, so I did it. And then now you're telling me I did it wrong. (laughs) What am I supposed to do? So how do men give, now that they know this, how can they give that feedback in a really like productive way? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot here. So let me talk about the sponsor angle first, but I think there are a lot of different angles. So I see this high talent women you're you're referring to, Andrea, and and I want to push her forward. I see her talent. I see her leadership potential. The question then on the sponsorship side is, am I her vocal fan? Am I raving about her? Am I talking about her when she's not in the room? Is my ear always tuned for upcoming advancement opportunities that she'd be perfect for? And then do I have the courage to actually, even when she's not there, to always be saying, hey, you know who we should be considering? Andrea, she's ready. She's locked and loaded. She's demonstrated she can do this. Men often feel awkward about being that kind of raving fan about women, right? What will people think, right? Will they think there's something going on, you know, that it feels kind of weird or awkward to me? Men feel more comfortable doing that for other men, but we've got to practice doing it for those high talent women. Another piece I can do is the disruption piece. So, you know, I'm in that meeting where we're talking about her again, she may not be even in the room, but people are going to use language about her. Like she's prickly. She's abrasive. She's, you know, masculating. I've even heard that applied to women. Am I willing to disrupt when I hear those terms? And I think this is a big part of public allyship. Am I willing to say, whoa, ouch, hold the phone. You know, where did that, where did that adjective come from? You know, and let's flip the script. Would you say that about a male 
who did exactly the same thing or said exactly the same thing? And often the answer is no, but it's feeding into gender bias, but I have to be willing to call it out. How about even something subtle? Like, you know, she's not very likable. Really? Uh, how are we measuring likability? You know, especially if it's on an interview panel or we're considering people for promotion or advancement or pay raises. How are we evaluating likability for men? You know, why are you talking about her likability? How's that relevant to her competence and her performance? I need to dig into that and disrupt it and ask Socratic questions. You know, where is that coming from? Tell me what you mean by she's not likable. Can you be very, very clear? Because I see her as competent and, and I'm confused by your, your language. When I started Ambition Theory over five years ago, I knew that if we genuinely wanted to make the construction industry inclusive for women, that change needed to start at the top. But five years ago, nobody was ready to hear this message. Something has shifted recently, though, and it's really exciting. Organizations are reaching out because they want us to do a presentation for their leadership teams, and in some cases, the entire company. They see that up until now, the burden of change has rested entirely on the shoulders of women. If this message speaks to your association or company, we want to hear from you. Visit ambitiontheory.com forward slash book a call to learn how you can book a presentation for your organization. I love that you brought that up because... It's actually for like accelerating the path to leadership. It's actually the more important thing is what happens when you're actually not in the room. So starting, I love that you started with that perspective is like, let's shut it down like at that higher level. So maybe it doesn't actually need to go to that point where they're giving that feedback. Because this happened to me literally, thank you for giving me this insight because this happened to me about a month ago. I did a talk, I shared this statistic. And someone came up to me after, they're like, Andrea, that double bind slide about the confidence and the bossiness. He's like, that's happening to someone on my team right now. And I'm like, oh, what's going on? Are they getting some pushback? They're like, no, I am. And he's like, so I love that you gave that answer. That's like, you know what? The next step is to like, you actually have to push back before it even gets to that woman, because that's, I think, where we're going to get that systemic change, because that influences decisions. So thank you so much for that answer. I love it. Do you have anything to add on that one, David? The other, the other aspect about feedback is the kind of feedback. And I don't, you've probably heard this one as well, that, you know, we, we hear and we see in the research that, you know, women are more likely to get vague feedback, subjective, generalized. It's not actionable and it's not helpful. And as you said, I just did it this way or do it this way. And it's not helpful. And, and men get much more direct feedback that is actionable. It's related to job promoting types of tasks. Women don't get that. Some of the reasons why they don't get it is sometimes men are just uncomfortable delivering what they think is critical feedback. Um, they're worried they're going to make her upset or offend her in some way, or God forbid she might cry or something if I, if I give her critical feedback. And guys just don't do tears very well. And, and so they don't. And, and the other thing is, it also can be just a perception. And this gets back to implicit bias that I just don't see her as leader material. I think she's a risky investment. Or I don't think she's going to last very long anyway, because she's probably just going to want to have kids and she's going to leave. 
So I'm just not going to spend a lot of time on it. And so they don't. And so I think that's one of the challenges too, is making sure that we're, de we're delivering the same quality and kind of feedback to everyone in our organization. Is there something that you could do before giving that feedback, like to check in with yourself to be like, is this feedback reinforcing gender stereotypes? Or is this the kind of critical feedback that is going to help you to get promoted? Because I think even for myself is giving this kind of feedback. I'm like, what? What do I say and what do I not say? And what's going to be helpful to them and what's not going to be helpful to them? Yeah, I, I think it's a good point. And one of the, one of the techniques that I, I think we hear a lot about that works really well, and I, I think it's a nice thing to kind of check in with yourself on is just do a real quick flip the script and go, hmm, would I tell him the same thing that I'm thinking about giving to her? Or would I give it to him differently than I would give it to her? And why is that? And what would I do differently if that was the case? And so sometimes flipping the script, it, it forces us to face that difference that we just don't see otherwise and go, well, why wouldn't you say that to her in the same way that you said it to him? Yeah. You know, it's funny you're asking this question, Andrea, because one of our favorite interviews with, was with a gentleman who is a senior editor at a major national publication. And he shared with us. I had an amazing young woman working for me. She was one of the smartest, ready for next steps people I'd ever worked with, but she kept sabotaging herself in meetings because she would do this thing called uptalk. Maybe you've seen this, you know, women finishing, usually women more than men, finishing sentences on a question, you know, kind of the uptalk. When you do that, it makes you sound like a much younger, maybe less credible person. And he knew there was a maybe a gender bias that people around the table, he could just see their expressions when she would start talking. Because of the uptalk, they would just kind of, you know, they weren't taking her seriously and engaging. And so he had to do a little wrestling like Dave, you know, just suggested and say, shall I even bring this up with her? You know, is it my place? And then he realized if I don't, as somebody who really wants to sponsor and, and see her succeed, who's going to do it for her? So I better, but I better also support her. So he gave her the feedback. He said, here's what I'm noticing. Could I just share this with you? There, there is a gendered element here. You know, it's something that we associate with younger women and it, it's causing you not to have your great ideas be taken seriously. Would it be okay with you if I paid for, uh, out of my budget, coaching around voice? You know, so you, I'll, I'll make sure you have somebody just to work with you on the uptalk piece. If you want to do that, it's up to you. But if you want to, I'll pay for it. I want to support you because I want people to take you seriously. I mean, it's one of those subtle things that I, I can't end every meeting saying, hey, I know she just did uptalk, but take her seriously anyway. It's probably one of those areas where she's going to have to think about changing to, to fit the environment. But I can be supportive even when I'm giving her that feedback. I like that because you acknowledge the elephant too, right? It's like, let's acknowledge the elephant. This is a thing that we're dealing with in society today. Probably not going to go away for a hundred years. Because obviously the best solution is like, maybe people are not biased against uptalk, right? That would be the yeah. ideal situation. But the thing is, in the short term, it's like, this is going to hold you back. It just is. like <laughs> It just is. It's no one's fault. Let's expose the elephant. It's right there. It's going to block you. How can we get around it? And this is how I'm going to support you. And a couple of things in that conversation I loved. They asked permission 
multiple times. They said, is it okay if I give that feedback? And it's like, is it okay? Would you be open to this? It's not like, all right, you've been up talking, you're going to speech coaching, mandatory. And it's, if you get that, it's like, you're dear the headlight. So I love, I love that story. Thank you for sharing that. You bet. So I had one, one other thing I actually took notes on when I was reading your book and you brought it up a little bit, the prove it again bias. So I'd never heard it coined that way before, but this happens to our clients all the time. Like I remember even this has happened to me multiple times. People are like, I just had my performance review. I'm not getting the promotion. Andrea, can you can, maybe like we could have a Zoom call and I can share my screen. I can show you the boxes and the things that I need to check and you can help me figure out like, what did I do wrong? What boxes do I need to check? And my initial reaction is like, I'm pretty sure the reasons you didn't get the promotion are not on this box, this sheet. So I don't know if sharing your screen with me and as going granular through these these skills is the best approach. Usually we talk lean that like I usually encourage them to look at it from a sponsorship perspective, from a relational perspective. What is going on outside of that? system, but I'd love it if you could explain the prove it again bias and what can we do to like call that elephant out? I can, I can begin. Dave's done a lot on this area too, but you know, just in short, in short, Andrew, this is the fact that there's very clear research showing that men, including junior men, but men at all levels get the nod for either hiring or promotion or pay increase based on potential, right? And you hear this all the time. Oh, he's got great potential. Yeah, he's never done this job. He has no experience, but boy, does he have potential. The opposite happens for women. You just don't hear the potential comment as much. What you hear is skepticism. You know, I yeah, I know she did this same job at her last company, but I'm just not sure she can do it. I think we need to see if she can actually do this, right? It's just a constant trend that women have to show that they can do the job over and over. And there's this skepticism that she really has the competence to do it consistently or that she has the potential that men. So we just see it over and over. And it doesn't matter what the industry is. And there are some ways that we can mitigate that. But Dave? Yeah, I think the other part of that is that because women hear this all the time, right? They, you're socialized into it. And it becomes internalized, that messaging that I have to prove it again. And it can lead to some, some behaviors also for women who, again, you probably see some of the research where you, know, you have a job and it has eight criteria. Women have seven of those criteria and, and they won't, and they won't apply for the job. Men have three or four and they're all putting their name in because men, men have learned that, oh, I don't have to have everything. I can get the job based off my potential again. And not that I've proven myself in that I have all of those qualities, all of those skill sets, all of those characteristics and traits and, and knowledge to go in there and do the job. And so there's an internalized message there that happens too. And so I think part of it is we have to think about how do we overcome some of that and begin to look around and, and think about, all right, why aren't there women in my organization applying for this job? Because there are a lot of them that are overly qualified for the job in many cases. And, and talking to them about why they aren't putting their name in there. 
and showing that we, were, we begin to affirm what the what we see in them, that they belong, maybe helping to overcome, in some cases, some of these imposter feelings that women are, are made to feel by the culture, the workplace that they're in, because they tend to be, again, underrepresented there. And so you look around like, ah, I'm not really sure if I belong here. Do I fit in here? And so you begin to question your ability to do the job and to, because you don't see somebody like you above you either. And so there's a lot of this messaging that's happening that we have to work to overcome in the workplace. And a lot of that gets back to the day-to-day -day interactions that we have with our employees and thinking about how do we affirm the work that they're doing, recognize the work that they're doing, put that up in lights, be that raving fan, as Brad was talking about, talk about them when they're not in the room so that we can begin to overcome that. I love that. I had one more question about this one, because it sounds like that women reinforce this behavior, right? Like I need to have 100% of the job criteria in order to I to apply, but then this like prove it again bias reinforces that again. So it's this double stereotype that's kind of preventing women from moving forward. And I want to ask a specific question about the construction industry. This is really unique and I'd love your perspective on it because the construction industry is project-based and usually projects are based on size, like dollar amount of the project. So to get to that next level in a project, it's like, okay, you can start on a, you know, maybe you could manage a $2 million project on your own, but what does it take to manage a $150 million project on your own? And where the challenge becomes within these really big companies, if they're only managing the, like 150 million is the smallest project, how the structure is not necessarily in place to actually like prove it again, because it's like, well, the reasons some of our clients get that they're not getting that promotion, it's like, oh, well, there's not the opportunity to get to the next level. You need to work on a $150 million project. And we're not managing any $150 million projects right now. Or it's okay, this $300 million project comes up and it's like, well, you're not at that level yet. So you kind of have to stay where you're at. So that challenge of like getting the experience, getting the exposure so that you can take that risk or just jumping into that massive risk, which is really risky, right? If you've never done a $300 million project, if something goes wrong, the stakes are so high. What What is a way to navigate that? I guess, I guess it's more of a navigation question, not I don't think there's a straightforward solution. You know, I keep going back to sponsoring. And I, I think one of the problems with our all of our industries, you know, Dave and I have been in the military for years, you're in construction. The dynamics are really very similar, you know, just in terms of proportion of women and very male-centric environments. I'm always worried about constantly putting the solution to these things back on women. You know, we've done that for so long, you know, so she could, I suppose, be constantly bringing this up in creative ways and pointing to her record and putting her name in the hat, even when it feels uncomfortable and, you know, collaborating on some of those big projects whenever she gets an opportunity. But I also keep coming back to where are the sponsors, where where are men in these organizations and senior leadership roles who are noticing her talent and then pulling her in, maybe pull her into a project that you're working on right now as your associate. So she gets her name attached to that. There's so there's so much powerful dynamic in collaboration and making sure that she's getting airtime. So let's pull her into a project I've got. I've got this $300 million project that I'm overseeing as a very senior male. I'm going to pull her in, let her be my sort of co-sponsor you know, sponsor on this. Then whenever I get an opportunity, guess what I'm going to do? Give her the mic. You know, we're going to go to key client meetings. I'm going to step out of the spotlight and I'm going to say, 
You know who's really got the subject matter expertise on this? It's Andrea, and she's really been running this thing. I'd love to hear what she has to say on this. And often in that dynamic, all of the usually men in the room are constantly going to look to me to answer questions, and I'm constantly going to direct the, the spotlight back to her. You know, I appreciate the question, but she's a subject matter expert. Let's let her answer that. I've got to do that work and it's got to be steady and consistent. Otherwise, I think, again, we have forever to go until we change this dynamic. That's actually a lot of work, right? Because if people are asking you questions all the time, it's your instinct, right? I want to serve them. I want to help them. Of course, I want to answer the question. So it's like that taking that second to hijack your automatic behavior and be uh -huh. like, how can I elevate others in this way? And you actually bring this to another question I had about it being win-win. So a lot of times the mentality is, is if like more women come into leadership, it takes away from the leadership positions that men could attain. And it's this really like assumption that it's a zero-sum game. But as you're describing this, and I love that you're using sponsorship as the answer to so many questions because I am super passionate about that topic. But sponsorship is really win-win. Like in your example, if the end of that meeting or whatever, where the, the questions are being directed at that protege, if the outcome is positive, at the end of the day, the person in charge still looks good. Yes. Right? Whether they answered the questions or someone on the team answered the questions, at the end of the day, if everybody looks good. So can you talk about some other examples of why men should be allies and why they should support women? Yeah. Dave, do you want to talk about some of the other benefits for men? Yeah, certainly. And you know, there's there's a lot of, and I think that's one of the things that we lose sight of are the benefits for everybody. The win-win-win, actually, we, we think of it, the three wins, right? The organization wins or the team wins because they get better, right? We're more productive, more effective, more efficient, whatever the case might be. And then, of course, you know, with advancing women, women win and then men do too. And some of the benefits here is that we find that when we're doing this really well and we're promoting equity and diversity in our organizations, that because the way men do this, right, through relationships in the workplace that they're gaining in other places, like they get increased access to information. So think about the sponsoring example you just went through. Guess what? If you're sponsoring and mentoring lots of these, again, women, and they're advancing and moving up into other positions, guess what? You're going to have access to all sorts of information, knowledge, right? It begins to just to proliferate throughout the organization. And you have all of these connections within your network which is the second big benefit that we find they have a more diverse set of networks. And that's both inside the organization and it goes outside because again, eventually a lot of these people, they're gonna be opportunities. They're gonna be so successful that they're gonna find other opportunities sometimes outside your organization, right? They're gonna get, somebody's gonna poach them from, from your organization, hopefully not, but sometimes that happens. And yeah, you're gonna have all of these people in your inside your network all all around the different organizations within the industry, which makes you again, makes you more powerful, makes you more successful in what you do. You get to be known, it becomes your brand. You're one of those rainmakers. You're one of those people who's really good at you have a lineage of people that you've sponsored throughout the organization, made successful, and and the organization's benefiting from that. And so again, there are lots of benefits that come to you because you're helping the organization. And then the last part I think is really important is recognizing that that men develop lots of great interpersonal skills when they do this much, when they're doing more of this. So they're doing more of these interactions, they're working together more collegial as allies, as sponsors, as mentors. And 
So they're, they're going to have better empathy. They have a better understanding. They're sharing information, sharing perspectives. They understand what she's talking about. They have more better EQ. They have better communication skills, all things that make them better leaders. So they're benefiting in so many different ways out. Love that answer. Anything to add, Brad? No, I, I, I think those are all big, but I just one tag on to, you know, Dave's comment that he's going to be a better leader. He's going to be a better colleague. He's going to be more successful because of all these skills he's honing in these relationships. Well, guess what? I don't check those in the evening when I go home either, right? They're going to, I get to take those home with me to be a better partner, better parent. You know, this is going to help me in all phases of life, not just at work. I love it. So all the things you're saying, it's like, sign me up to be an ally. And there was this really powerful quote in your book that I wrote down a couple times. And it is, don't label yourself as an ally until a woman calls you an ally. You are an ally for women when she calls you an ally and never before. Can you unpack that, please? <laughs> yeah. And let me give you context for that, Andrea. Yeah. I, I got to be honest. Too often, Dave and I have been giving workshops for men, right? Maybe for an organization on better male allyship. We've done some of these, you know, that are multiple sessions over time and kind of take men on a journey to improving their allyship brand or their skill. And it's, it's sad, but funny that sometimes the, 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 the guys are so stoked about getting their certificate or their badge or, you know, recognition that they're an ally now so they can prove they've been through the training. So they're official allies and we have to pop their bubble and say, no, nobody is going to give you a badge or a credential. This is all about a journey that never ends. You, you don't ever get to the destination when it comes to allyship. We're always learning, always trying to get better still making mistakes and and your ally brand is going to be how you show up at that moment when you still have a lot to learn so yeah let other people identify you have that kind of humility that's going to be core to your leadership and your allyship brand and don't ever presume that people see you as an ally and i think you get into trouble when you start calling yourself that I love it. Okay. One last question. Another quote from your book was, as an ally, doing or saying nothing is not an option. And I know you talked about the two-second rule. Can you quickly explain that one? Yeah. And, you know, this really comes from the idea of privilege when we say that, hey, as an ally, you don't have the option. Because if you do have the option, that really it really shows that you do have privilege because otherwise you would you have to do something there. But that two-second rule really comes out of the bystander research. And what we find is that, you know, people when they're in groups are less likely when they see they hear something or see something that is offensive or it's wrong, they're less likely to do anything when others are around them. And especially if they don't do something quickly. So if they sit, because they're going to sit there and wait, and they're going to watch, and they're going to say, "Ooh, did somebody else react? Is somebody else going to do something?" And we're all just kind of waiting and watching. And guess what? If you just keep waiting and watching, nobody does anything, of course. And so, what we find is after about three seconds, that that's when that happens. That's that inflection point. And so we have the two-second rule that you you have to do something as an ally. You got to do it within two seconds because otherwise, you're probably not going to do anything, and nobody else is either. So using that two second rule when you hear something to go just say something do something disrupt in the moment brad and i love the the ouch technique 
If you don't know what to say, just go, ouch. And everybody's going to awkwardly look at you and you give you a few seconds and you can decide, what am I going to say? But now what am I going to do? And, and hopefully at that point, you know, you've already thought about what are some of the kind of go-to responses that you have to respond to those, those kind of comments or things that you might hear in the moment that are biased. And, and it could be, again, just things like, you know, I, that didn't land right with me, or they were trying to make a joke. You know, that wasn't very funny. Could you explain that to me? But using all sorts of, you know, ways to, to elicit them to explain it and find ways to, to draw out that it wasn't, it didn't land right. It was offensive in some way. Oh, I love that. It just like hijacks your automatic response and gets you going. Because then once you said, ouch, people are going to expect, I guess it just breaks the silence and either you say something or someone else might say something too, because you hijacked their automatic response too. So thank you so much for that. So this is my absolute last question. So we always end our podcast with a 24 hour action that people can take after learning something new. So you've shared so much today um, and it can be a little bit overwhelming. So what is one thing, and I'll get both of you to pick one thing that people can do to just get started on their journey as an ally. So Brad, I'll start with you. Just to get started. And so I'm going to address this to men who want to be better allies to women specifically. So that part of your journey, I would say, I'm going to go back to your favorite topic, Andrea, sponsorship. So I would look around at some of those talented junior people who happen to identify as women in your organization and ask yourself, who are some of those high talent folks that really should be getting some attention and notice for next possibilities, advancement opportunities, key job assignments or key projects? Who are some of those folks? And do I have any social capital that I could share to make sure that she gets some shout outs or notice on her performance? And it might be as simple as walking into my own boss's office and saying, hey, you know what? I've I've really been impressed with what Sarah's been doing. I don't know if you've noticed it, but you know, one, two, three, she's done all these things. And boy, when I look around, I can't think of anyone that would be better suited for that upcoming uh, opportunity. So start putting some skin in the game when it comes to public advocacy for women. I love it. Dave, how about you? What's an action? Well, before you're going to be a better ally at work, you got to start at home. So we, we always talk about gender equity starts at home, and this is a challenge for them. So go home and do a domestic audit. We know that women do when they're partnered with men, and most of us are in dual earner, dual career relationships these days. Women are doing more than twice the amount of domestic responsibilities at home than, than their male partners are. That's everything from the, the everyday chores and tasks to the caregiving, to the homeschooling, to the emotional cognitive labor of taking you know, keeping track of, of things and lists and planning events. And you got to go home and, and do that domestic audit and go, how am I doing? Am I, am I showing up as an ally at home? Am I supporting you and your career in the way that you need? Am I showing up as an ally and doing my fair share, my equitable share of the work here at home? Because when we do it at home, that frees, obviously frees her up to be more better at her job. But at the same time, it changes our behavior when we show up and we're going to balance things out and prioritize a little bit differently when we're at work. And we'll do things like, hey, when I've got to go take the kids to the doctor, it's my turn. Guess what? I'm not going to slink out the back door, hush, hush, all quiet. I'm going to leave loudly. I'm going to announce that I'm leaving. I'm going to tell people why I'm leaving and that, hey, sorry, I can't make that meeting today. I'll catch up with you tomorrow. Because it normalizes, it validates, again, what we all have. We all know we have caregiving responsibilities. And it normalizes that for junior men. It also normalizes it for women who have been stigmatized over this for too long. I love it. Thank you. And how do people get the book? 
You can find the book on Amazon or any other big bookseller, and you can go to our webpage, workplaceallies.com, and you can find out more about the book there too. Awesome. And can, can people connect with you on LinkedIn? Absolutely. They can. We're both on LinkedIn. Okay. We'll put your links in the show notes. Thank you so much for this interview. I learned so much. And thank you, thank you, thank you for all the great work that you're doing and the conversations that you're starting. You bet. Thanks, Thanks for, for including, including us. us. Yeah, it was fun. Hey, before you go, I wanted to take a minute to read a review of our podcast. This review is from SSPCL123 from the US, and they say, fantastic. I have been absolutely loving this podcast. It has been motivating me to be a more reflective and engaged colleague. Thank you so much for that generous review. We really love hearing from our listeners. And I'm wondering if I can ask you a favor. Can you take a minute and leave us a five-star review and a comment on Apple Podcasts? That really helps us to get the word out so that we can keep making episodes for you for free. Thank you for listening.